History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 115, Meet the Neighbors. And really, it's Meet the Neighbors number one. As I hinted at in previous episodes, this is the beginning of a new episode format that I'll start mixing in with the religion episodes after each king's death. Of course, nobody has ever ruled the whole world. For as long as there have been territorial states, there have been borders and frontiers where their power comes to an end. The Achaemenids are obviously no exception, but up to this point, their southern and northern borders have been so poorly attested that there's not much to say. The northwestern border was Greece, which is our primary source for information in general, and is exceedingly involved in the general narrative of Persian history. And the eastern border has been India, which brings us to today's episode. In the future, there will be a lot more, much better documented, and much more involved neighboring states to deal with. So, as needed, I'll be popping in episodes like this to get a sense of what is going on in those neighboring states between bouts of interaction in the narrative. So, let's get into it. Today, we are talking about India. Specifically, India as it stood in the mid-4th century BCE, around the time of Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire. Now, the first thing I need to do is address some terminology, both ancient and modern. Most of the time when I talk about India on this show, because I'm coming from the Persian side of things, I'm talking about the area closest to Iran, which is almost entirely modern Pakistan, the Indus River Valley. It also includes a little bit of modern Afghanistan and occasionally bits of modern India, but we'll get into that at a later date, or I guess a later timestamp. In a strange twist of history, the country called India today 
doesn't include the bulk of the Indus River, which lent it its name via the Persian province of Hindush, named for the river, which is Sindh or Sindhu in the local languages. I am going to assume that everyone is broadly familiar with the idea of India and Pakistan's partition in the late 1940s as the British Empire withdrew and why those are two separate countries today. One of the things that often comes up in discussions of this with the general public is is the idea of ancient India even a real thing? And the answer is yes. Even though the name India was never applied indigenously to the entire region, and no state before British rule ever controlled the entirety of modern India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, the general region was understood from a very early point as being a single unit, the South Asian subcontinent. Greek texts use India to describe almost that exact geographic region as early as 300 BC, basically as soon as they knew all of it was there, and Indian texts using the name Jambudvipa describe almost the exact same geographical boundaries. So yes, this was recognized as a distinct, specific area, even in antiquity. Now, talking about Achaemenid India immediately gets us into some pretty weird territory. Everyone should be pretty used to, this part of the ancient world doesn't have many sources. That part is reasonably well documented. This part isn't documented at all. At least you should be at this point. It's in episode 115, come on. India is kind of unique, though. It is much better documented than we could reasonably hope for a humid region that will eat through perishable writing material with no surviving evidence of writing until after the Achaemenid period, whose most notable neighbors were the very poorly documented Achaemenid Eastern satrapies. Thanks to Buddhist and Jain chronicles, as well as other literature about the early histories of those religions, purportedly all originating in India, but largely preserved in the Himalayas, China, and Sri Lanka, we have fairly detailed accounts of the politics and developments of the subcontinent in the 7th to 4th centuries BCE, or at least the northern subcontinent. The thing is, none of them so much as mention the Persians. There's not a single hint in any Indic source of a massive imperial power in the West prior to the 320s BCE. None at all. The closest we get are a couple of minor groups in the Vedas, with vaguely Iranian-sounding names like the Cambodia, but they hardly seem to represent a major power. That's not to say that this Indic literature doesn't include places that were in the Achaemenid Empire. Much to the contrary, several sources talk about prominent princes, nobles, and other major figures in the Buddhist and Jain traditions studying at the so-called University in Taxila, the northeastmost major city in the Indus River Valley. The Vedas also talk about Taxila as a capital city for the independent kingdom of Gandhara, a major power in the Vedic epics, 
which you might recognize, which you might recognize as the name of an Achaemenid satrapy. Unfortunately, the early archaeological work at Tuxila was very poorly done, and it is difficult to determine how much Achaemenid influence permeated the city. But it is worth noting that Gandhara as a whole stops being a major feature in the Indic histories right around the time it would have been conquered by Cyrus the Great, or possibly Cambyses. In fact, according to Buddhist tradition, the king of Gandhara in the mid-6th century, contemporary with Cyrus, was a guy named Pushkarasaran, who gave up the throne to become a traveling Buddhist monk. The Buddhist version of this story holds that Pushkarasaran was given a series of nested trunks, with each layer containing an assortment of precious luxuries except for the last one, which only contained a plate inscribed with the greatest wisdom of the Buddha. He was so stunned with these revelations that he gave up his royal position. In a more skeptical, pragmatic view of history, well, wouldn't it just be oh so convenient if this happened to coincide with a Persian invader kicking him off the throne anyway? However, the story of Pushkarasaran and the end of Gandhara's prominence in Indian records for a while does tie in directly with the more important kingdom of the time for our purposes. This revelatory plate was supposedly given to the king of Gandhara, by his counterpart from the far side of India, Bimbisara, king of Magadha, a then small kingdom on the eastern side of the Gangetic Plain, bounded in the north by the river Ganges itself. We really don't know much about Magadha before Bimbisara's time. Apparently, he was the start of a new dynasty as the first of the Haryanka clan of nobles to take the throne. It was centered in the city of Rajagriha, modern Rajgir, and does appear in the Vedas as one of the earliest powerful city-states to emerge in India's second urbanization phase. This was a span from around 800 to 200 BCE, where cities exploded in size across the northern subcontinent, and Magadha was counted as one of the 16 Mahajanapadas, the great states. These spanned that whole region, but by Bimbisara's time, it was dwarfed by its neighbors in the north and west. That time is conventionally dated to the mid-540s BCE, right around the period where Cyrus the Great was conquering Lydia and just beginning to push the Persian Empire east of Parthia for the first time. But of course, the far side of the Gangetic Plain may as well have been another planet for those first few years before the Persians reached Gandhara. Bimbisara started off as a pretty conventional ruler. He came from the Kshatra Varna, the nobility, followed the traditional polytheistic Vedic religion just like most everyone around him, and carried out some military campaigns, most notably against his eastern neighbors in Anga, functionally a city-state not even large enough to be called a Mahajanapada. But the world around Bimbisara was changing. 
a movement of people called Sramana was gaining traction and diversifying. These Sramana were ascetics, heterodox preachers, and others with unusual approaches to local religion. They wore loose, shapeless robes, or sometimes no clothes at all, and called for abandoning all material attachments in search of enlightenment, aka basically the exact opposite of everything the nobility held dear. And yet, a pair of Sramana caught Bimbisara's attention, and he started to patronize both of them possibly because they began their lives as nobles as well. Both the Jain founder Mahavira and Siddhartha Gautama, a.k.a. THE Buddha, supposedly converted Bimbisara to their followings according to each religion's respective traditions. In all likelihood, he did patronize them both, and followed generally Sramanic beliefs himself without committing too hard one way or the other. And that may have been pretty easy at the time. There probably were still a lot of gray area and room to overlap between the developing Sramanic traditions. Though religious tradition always holds that beliefs were fully formed from the start, Mahavira and the Buddha may have been seen as largely aligned early on, though that changed by the end of Bimbisara's life. According to Jain tradition, the king committed suicide, while Buddhist tradition holds that he was imprisoned and assassinated by his own son, Ajata Shatru, who went on to seize Magadha for himself. Patricide or not, Ajata Shatru oversaw one of the greatest moments of political advancement in his kingdom's history. You get the impression from the Jain tradition that the new king was always pretty favorable towards Mahavira and his followers, while Buddhist tradition paints him as initially hostile, only to come around and favor Buddhism, ultimately acting as the Buddha's final patron and the one who constructed the stupas, little shrines to house the Buddha's remains. More importantly, though, Ajatashatru went to war with his larger and more powerful neighbors, first campaigning against some minor tribes to the north and fortifying a tiny village called Pataliputra before taking on a confederation of larger Mahajanapadas called the Vajika League. Conquering everything north of the Ganges up to the foothills of the Himalayas. Then he turned his sights west, and Ajatashatru followed this up with a campaign against the massive, for the time, Kingdom of Kosala. Of course, this little Magadha empire under Ajatashatru was minuscule compared to their Achaemenid neighbors, it was roughly the size of Greece, and largely coincided with the Persian Empire's maximum extent under Darius and Xerxes. Still, in the span of a generation, it had gone from a lesser kingdom to one of the most powerful Mahajanapadas in the Gangetic Plain. But things stalled out after Ajatashatru. His son, Udayan, attempted to continue expanding, but was unable to score any permanent victories and eventually died in the attempt. 
However, Udayan is notable for one major change in Magadan history. He relocated the capital from its traditional place in Rajagriha to the town fortified by his father, Pataliputra. Over the years, Pataliputra had taken on a role a bit similar to Alexandria or Persepolis, a new place that the kings of Magadha could remake in their own image, and Udayan was embracing the new fortified palace complex, which eventually became the basis of modern Patna. Udayan's descendants ruled Magadha for the rest of the 5th century, formally patronizing Buddhism, which was spreading rapidly alongside the Jains throughout the neighboring states as well. However, territorial expansion for Magadha had largely ceased. Eventually, Udayan was deposed in an uprising and replaced with a new king called Shishunaga, who marks the start of Magadha's Shishunaga dynasty, around 413 BCE, at the exact time that the Persians were throwing back in with Sparta in the Peloponnesian War and retaking the coast of Anatolia. Shishunaga marked a return to Magadi expansionism as well, and established a secondary capital in the conquered oligarchic city of Vaishali, on the western side of his growing kingdom, as a sort of forward operating base. He conquered the kingdom of Avanti, one of the other very old and very prominent regional powers. This spread Magadha's control far to the southwest, almost to the coast north of modern Mumbai, once again in part because it was now the uncontested master of the region, Magadhi expansion stopped under Shishunaga's heirs, but they had plenty of other business to attend to. By now, the Shishunaga rulers were out-and-out Buddhists, fully supporting the religious movement under their imperial patronage and settling disputes about Buddhist orthodoxy within their territory. As they controlled the vast majority of lands where Buddhism had spread by the end of the 5th century, this functionally meant that the Shishunaga could influence the increasingly dominant religious beliefs of their neighbors as well. This lasted for 10 generations, mostly static in terms of territory, until their final king, Mahanandan, made a fatal heir. He fell for or at least lusted for, one of his servant women, a member of the Shudravarna, the lowest rung of Vedic Indian society. The exact timeline for these events isn't great, placing him somewhere vaguely in the early or mid-4th century BCE, though that makes him a contemporary of Artaxerxes II either way since that guy lived for so long. Mahanandin and this unnamed servant had a bastard son called Mapadma Nanda in Vedic texts, or Ugrasenya in the Buddhist tradition. The Buddhists actually hold that Ugrasenya was a total usurper of unknown lineage who started life as a hinterland bandit. But Jain sources, and even Greco-Roman sources, agree with the Vedic version, 
and the appearance of Greeks and Romans should tell you that we're getting pretty close. Oddly enough, we really don't know much about what exactly happened under the so-called Nanda dynasty, partly because it was relatively short-lived, and Buddhist sources imply a succession crisis between Mahapadma's eight brothers vying for control in the years following his death. However, one thing is clear. Mahapadma and his brother Dana sought the end of the Mahajanapadas altogether, seeking to establish absolute Magadhi supremacy in the Gangetic Plain. From Putaliputra, they orchestrated the conquest of the rest of the major states of Iron Age India, pushing further west and south than any of their predecessors and absorbing most of what is now northern and central India save for the areas around Mumbai and the then-forested regions of the subcontinent. Why exactly their conquest stopped, we don't quite know. It's entirely possible, given the lack of clear documentation for Nanda rule, that they didn't, really, and that the Nandas would have kept going had they survived. The Thar Desert in northern India probably played a role as western terminus, not worth passing, but the region between the desert and the Himalayas is fertile and traversable. Hell, that's where Delhi is today. Had the Nandas survived, it would even have been the perfect time to strike. While earlier generations would have gotten around the Thar Desert and found the full force of the Achaemenid Empire waiting for them, the Nandas reached their peak at the exact same time as Alexander. The West was in utter chaos, so we don't entirely know what was up, though we will see in some upcoming episodes that there may have been a real fear that they were about to arrive in the Indus Valley any day. However, that's just about as far as I want to take the political history of India at the moment. The Nanda Empire, with its core in the old kingdom of Magadha and the city of Pataliputra on the eastern Ganges, now reigns supreme. After some ads, I want to talk about what that actually means. What was India like under Nanda rule? I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Okay, so what was Nanda India like? Trying to understand a political system that only existed for a couple of decades in a place with no contemporary sources 2300 years ago is always going to be difficult. And the Nandas were vilified by later generations, which makes much of the available information more dubious from the start. As I said at the beginning of the episode, there's basically no textual evidence from either side of the Thar Desert for interaction between the Achaemenids and the kingdoms of northern India, including the Nanda. At least in the latter case, that's pretty understandable given that they overlap with Artaxerxes III and his successors, when Achaemenid internal sources declined and the Persians were very clearly focused on western affairs. However, we know that they had some sort of interaction. First of all, it's just impossible that they wouldn't, given their proximity and the Nanda's rapid expansion. But also, because we have evidence for it. Indian coins called Karshapana, including Magadhi coinage, appear in Achaemenid-era coin hordes. Internally, we can say just a little more about the Nanda Empire. Different sources provide different views of their structure, usually breaking down on familiar party lines. Hindu, Greek, Roman, Buddhist, and Jain. The Hindu version presents a centralized monarchy. Aryan presents a decentralized sort of feudal structure with powerful aristocrats. The Hellenistic-era Greeks tended to present them as a combination of centralized rule and vassal states, much like the early Achaemenids. The Buddhists present a pretty similar version to the Greeks. The Jains lean more toward the centralized version seen in Hinduism. Modern historians take this and try to synthesize it all, coming up with a structure vaguely similar to the Neo-Assyrian Empire deeply centralized rule in Magadha itself and the regions conquered under Shishunaga, with increasingly independent vassal states on the southern and western frontiers. This makes sense, as it would mean that Magadha, and through them the rest of northern India, followed a very similar trajectory to other regions like Roman Italy, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and China. 
You start with loosely assembled confederations where the most powerful city-states take tribute from their defeated neighbors. As power expands, the hegemonic city-state expands direct control over the surrounding area, but not the outliers. Then that centralized power expands and contracts over the generations, but the trend is always toward a more direct control by the center of power. According to all traditions, including the Greeks, northern India was home to extraordinarily wealthy kingdoms, none more than the Nandas. Dhananda, the second and final king of note, was remembered for hoarding treasure acquired through exorbitant taxes, but ultimately losing them to a flood from the Ganges. They controlled mines and lumber yards or had vassals who controlled them all across the region, so the resources were certainly there for this sort of massive wealth accumulation, and their extensive tribute and tax policies would certainly explain why they fell out of popular favor within a generation. Militarily, we really don't know much more than their reputation, primarily from references in Alexandrian sources where it is presented as an army of hundreds of thousands of men and thousands of elephants. Even inflated, the numbers from those Greco-Roman authors reflect the stories told to the Macedonians when they reached northern India. Uh, spoiler, I guess, for one of the most famous military campaigns in all of history. The Nanda army was clearly a force to be reckoned with given their rapid expansion. India has always been extremely populous compared to its neighbors, so it's reasonable to think that the Nanda could muster a large force for their time, but how that would compare to the much larger and more centralized structure of the Achaemenids is kind of hard to decide. Those are the aspects of Nanda rule that are going to play an important part in our narrative as the history of Persia but it's not really the most important part of the Magadis' legacy, which will play an important role in our narrative later on. That superlative goes to religion. One important thing to understand about this period is that Hinduism, as it exists today, really wasn't a thing yet, especially in northern India. That only came after about 200 BCE with a process that scholars call the Hindu synthesis, when aspects of the Sramana faiths, Vedic or Brahmanic religion, and ancient Dravidian religion from southern India began to mix together, both intentionally and organically. At this stage, the most direct predecessor to Hinduism up here in the north was the traditional Vedic religion that had come to India and developed alongside the Indo-Aryan migrations way back around 1500 BCE. By this time, the core religion of the Vedas had developed into what historians call Brahmanism, named after the priestly and highest of the four Varnas the basis of the Indian caste structure. The Brahmins were the hereditary priests and religiously considered the highest-ranking Varna. This was what you could see as the archetypical polytheistic religion of 4th century India, with a similar social structure to their contemporaries all over Western Asia and Europe. 
Emphasis was placed on ritual and the importance of the priesthood as intermediaries between worshippers and the gods. In addition to the Vedas, the Dhammasutras, Puranas, and traditional epic poems had already developed over time, reflecting new strains of thought that entered the general Brahmanic milieu of northern India. However, Brahmanism was never the exclusive ideology of the region, and declined under Magadhi rule. Also emerging from the initial Vedic tradition's first meetings with the indigenous philosophies of India, the Sramana faiths developed right alongside Brahmanism. In one sense, Sramana is kind of a catch-all for heterodox philosophies that diverged from the traditional Vedic worldview in the 8th to 4th centuries, founded on principles ranging from fundamental amorality to atomist creation to pure agnosticism. However, by the Shishunaga period, the Sramana had already split into three primary movements, Buddhism, Jainism, and Ajavika. Of the three, Ajavika is the least notable for us, both because it remained relatively small and because it was functionally extinct by the 7th century CE. Still, it was big enough to merit official patronage by the Nanda and their successors. They followed a doctrine of niyati, usually translated as fate, but practically meaning fatalistic determinism. There is no free will, everything to ever happen is entirely preordained, all of creation is trapped in an internal cycle of life, death, and reincarnation. They even generally rejected the concept of gods as spiritually higher beings, especially in regard to any sort of intelligent design in creation, and they were decried as atheists by other groups. I feel like this is all worth noting primarily because it highlights how the Ajavika were a sort of popular refutation of many of the core principles held in common across other Indo-Iranian traditions, whether that's the Brahmins, Buddhists, Zoroastrians, or even the Scythian religion. On one hand, you can see from just casual observation of modern trends how these ideas can gain popularity. And on the other, you can see why the other groups in society didn't like the Ajavika. Then come the Jains, who have never really managed to get the same level of world prominence as their Buddhist counterparts, but have survived to the modern world and likewise received patronage under the Nanda, possibly being the favored Sramanic group in their time. Jainism preaches nonviolence often total nonviolence, up to including vegetarianism, and a belief that while we can experience all of reality, humans are not truly capable of expressing or comprehending the full scope of that experience. This is most famously summarized by the principle that, quote, in some ways it is, and in some ways it is not, and it is indescribable. That maxim, theoretically, covers everything in existence. Jainism is ontological to the core and places immense value on asceticism as an escape from greed, both material and more abstract selfishness. 
Of course, there's more to it than that, but much of that is shared with Buddhism in broad strokes, so I'm going to cover those concepts as part of the other religion. You can sort of see how Jainism achieved its status in and around the Nanda period. It's not as heterodox as Ajavika or some of the other Sramana philosophies, and concepts like pacifism, a route to salvation, and accepting the uncertainties of day-to-day -day life are always things that come with some level of mass appeal. Simultaneously, you can see why it never caught on to the same degree as, say, Buddhism. Absolute uncertainty isn't compelling as a species, humans have a preference for finding answers and patterns to explain things. Pacifism and nonviolence will always become a limiting factor for any philosophy, especially when trying to appeal to a world ruled by warrior nobles. To that ruling class, there is a pragmatic benefit to having many Jains in their kingdoms, but it's not necessarily what an expansionist power like Magadha would want to see adopted en masse. That brings us to Buddhism, which is the ancient Indian religion I want to explain the most. Unfortunately, I am terrible at explaining the Dharmic religions on a philosophical level. I can handle cosmology and the absolute basics, and I personally have what I feel is a pretty good understanding of the concepts, but it turns out that I can't write out an explanation that I feel is worth sharing with you. I'm gonna need to find a guest to come on and explain some things eventually. So if anybody has a suggestion, like a relevant history podcaster I might not know about, please let me know. That said, we don't need a deep understanding of Buddhism to progress with the narrative at this moment. It will become more important as time goes on, because unlike the Brahmins, Jains, or other Sramana groups, the Buddhists will expand well beyond the borders of India, branching through eastern Iran up into Central Asia and across China all the way to Japan. Buddhism will eventually become an important influence on ancient Iranian religious life. For now, I stick with the absolute basics. The earliest form of Buddhism, sometimes called pre-sectarian as it predates Buddhism fracturing into many different denominational philosophies, mostly has to be reconstructed by modern scholars based on the traditions shared between those various modern and historical denominations. Unlike Zoroaster and the Gothas, we have no source that can objectively be traced to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, or his immediate followers. There's even a school of skepticism in modern historiography that views the Buddha himself as a mythical figure, with the philosophies of early Buddhism developing from a community within the broader Sramana movement, and then being attributed to an individual figure. Buddhism, like many Indic religions, especially those that trace back to Sramana, emphasizes the concept of samsara, which literally means wandering, but can be better understood as a semi-eternal cycle of life, existence, and rebirth for the whole of creation. Interestingly, this concept doesn't appear in any recognizable form from the Vedas, but vague allusions to a less structured cycle of time do appear in the Gathas. 
so it may be a principle that was already developing during the Indo-Iranian split, but samsara proper really solidified around that second urbanization that I referenced earlier. Brahmanism appears to have had a more Zoroastrian-like approach, still believing in a physical underworld where souls would be held after death at least until the end of the current cycle of samsara in the mortal world. However, Sramanic faiths, like Buddhism, took a more immediate approach with the concept of karma and reincarnation. Karma is, very, very roughly, the moral quality of actions in life, or in Buddhism, how enlightened you become. That determines, or at least contributes, to how and what you will be reincarnated as in the next life, with all living things being an option. You could be reborn as a person, an animal, a plant, whichever. Even the gods were seen as subject to karma, but as they cannot die, they were somewhat cursed, never able to escape the cycle. These concepts were incorporated by the Brahmins later on and became part of Hinduism. The principal goal of Buddhism is to achieve nirvana, or enlightenment, an understanding of the nature of existence in accordance with proper morality. There are many aspects to how this is achieved, summarized in numbered lists. The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, which includes achieving understanding of the four jhanas, which are stages of enlightenment, and Satipatthana, which includes understanding even further concepts. I'm not going to get into the details of these, once again, because I don't feel like I have the vocabulary or grounding to do it, but also because it would take a whole extra episode. I just want to introduce some of these terms before I start referencing them in the podcast. The core tool for achieving this understanding is dhyana, aka meditation. From our perspective, it's worth noting that dhyana shares an etymology with Zoroastrian Dina, the yazada and practice of proper religion. In Buddhism, it is a similar concept, though not a literal divinity. Meditation is the way to achieve nirvana, provided it is used to work through the various steps on that path I described a minute ago. Nirvana, in addition to being everyone 15 years older than me's favorite band, is the ultimate goal of Buddhism. From the very earliest stages, Buddhists have believed that achieving this enlightenment means extinguishing greed, delusion, and an aversion to reality, and through this, the enlightened will escape the cycle of samsara. It is an escape from the tumultuous cycle of birth, death, and reincarnation. Over time and sectarian splits, whether this means the soul literally escapes to a physical parallel reality or simply achieves an enlightened state of mind has been debated and interpretations vary, but that's the idea. Buddhism is prominent enough worldwide today that its appeal doesn't really need any explanation. But of these movements, there is a reason that it particularly appealed to the Magadhi kings. Unlike the traditional Vedic religion, it stripped social power away from the Brahmin priests. 
It is more forgiving of vice and violence than the Jains, treating them merely as obstacles to overcome, either in this life or the next, circumstances permitting. It allowed even the kings themselves to make progress toward nirvana without giving up their role as kings entirely. Enlightenment just wasn't their purpose this time around. This plays into the idea of a Buddha, lowercase b, and bodhisattva. A Buddha is a person who has achieved enlightenment in life, whereas a bodhisattva is a teacher who can achieve nirvana but doesn't in this life in order to guide others. The complicated relationship between the Buddhists and Mahapadmananda can probably be pretty easily explained. Buddhism had long been the rising star and favored religion in the kingdom of Magadha, for all the reasons I just described. That means that the Nanda coup put them directly at odds with established Buddhist interests. However, by the end of Mahapadma's reign, everything was basically back in place, and though Dhananda is not remembered fondly by anyone, he doesn't seem to have had anything against any major religious group in particular. Outside of Nanda territory, Brahmanism still remained the most dominant religious tradition in northern India, including the Indus River Valley. So it was in the 320s BCE when a strange foreign conqueror from the west began looking toward the Hindu Kush, with ambitions to expand his empire past the boundaries of his known world. But that will have to wait, because next time we return to the narrative and Alexander is still in Bactria. Until then... If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things, including the support page, to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.